Uh, let's get started. Um, I grew up in Lansing, Kansas, which is not that far from here. It's a town fairly similar to this. Um, my dad grew up there basically in Leavenworth, which is kind of the same thing. My mom grew up there. Both my grandparents lived there. Most of my aunts and uncles lived in that area. In fact, my mom and I went to the same high school and had the same principal and a few of the same uh, teachers. Um, and if you grew up in this kind of situation, you know what it's like to um, kind of live in the legacy and reputation of the generations of your family that went before you. Um, in fact, when I'm in Leavenworth, I don't even have a name. I'm just David Boy. That's like that's my name in Leavenworth. I'm David Boy. Um, and uh, and it wasn't until a few years back uh, that I realized it was at a family reunion that I realized that um, this goes both ways. That not only did I live in the the legacy of, of those of my clan who went before me, but I affected things for those that came after. Um, my cousin Brandon um, and I were talking at a family reunion a few years back, and uh, as always, we start talking about sports and stuff, and, and somewhere in the conversation, he makes the statement, you have no idea what it was like playing football in your shadow. And I was kind of blown away, and, and uh, he was five years younger than me, and so he entered high school just as I was getting out, and so we never actually played together, but um, but I asked him what he meant, and uh, and he says, well, you were a legend, like, uh, apparently all the coaches couldn't stop talking about me, and uh, every time they wanted more effort out of the team, they would tell a Chris Heinzelman story, and I was kind of flabbergasted, because that did not feel like my experience at all, and so I asked him what kind of stories the coaches told, and he said, he goes on to tell you about this time that we were in a playoff game, and we're making a goal line defense, and I had a stomach bug that night, and I'm on the goal line, and I sack the quarterback, and I run to the sidelines, and I puke, and I come back in, and I I make a tackle for a loss, and I run back to the sidelines, and I puke again, and I come back in, and I make another sack, and, and we stop them on the goal line, and and, uh, and we shut down the opposing team's drive and, and win the game. And apparently, whenever somebody was was not given their all, coach would tell that Chris Heinsohn's story about the time he saved the game with a stomach bug. And I really, really wanted to meet this Chris Heinsohn dude because he sounded like a stud. Like, his style sounded awesome. Um... And as much as I loved kind of sitting in my cousin's adoration, I had to set the story straight because there's no way I could let this stand. Here's what really happened. Wednesdays was our school cafeteria's Mexican food day. And this day was burrito day. And so I, uh, I ate the two burritos that came with my lunch. I bought two extras. And then I ate two or three leftover burritos that were at the table. And so I'm six or seven burritos in. And I had um, third lunch, which means I eat pretty late in the day. And, uh, and Wednesday also happens to be football practices. Like That was our big conditioning day. We did this huge conditioning session at the beginning of practice, ran ourselves silly, jumped up and down, put somebody on your back and ran up a hill with them. Like, we did all kinds of crazy stuff on, on Wednesdays. And so, uh, so I, I, with six or seven burritos in my belly from just a couple hours ago, I'm running and jumping and all the other stuff, and, and shortly thereafter, we start what we call scout offense, where the, like, freshman and sophomore team pretends to be the team that we're getting ready to play. And so they're running plays they've never run before so that we can see how they work. And so we are fully expected to crush these guys. Like, that's – if we don't, we get in, like, huge trouble. And uh, – but these are, like, several years younger than us and learning an offense on the fly. And so there's very, very little competition. Well, not long after doing all the running, not long into scout offense, 
about five of these burritos decide they want off the bus. And so I run to the sidelines and I throw up. That part was true. Um, I Actually, I made a sack and then I ran over and throw up. I do come back in and make the next tackle, run back over, throw up again, and come back in and make another sack. But this is like me playing with my kids. This is not hard stuff. And uh, so the essentials of the story were close, but I most certainly did not have a stomach bug unless lack of self-control counts as a stomach bug. But um, I most certainly was not defending the goal line in some playoff team and, and, uh, and was not playing another varsity team at all. And, uh, and, uh, and actually, when this like legendary practice was happening, I was mostly embarrassed that I couldn't keep my lunch down. I was like, everybody was, I was making everybody kind of wait on me, and I was very conscious that I was probably going to get teased for, for losing my lunch, you know, uh, because I ran a little bit. And I definitely was not trying to be tough. Like, that was not even in it for me. But as I was thinking through that story this week, it struck me how different things can look when you look back on them, when you look uh, backwards, when you see things in the rearview mirror. Anybody ever had that when, when you look back at something and it look, looks very different looking backwards than it did when you were actually living it out uh, forward? Um, we're actually going to talk about that today. This is our eighth week of this year's summer series called Acts like a Christian, um, where we're skimming the book of Acts uh, to see what it might say about being a Christian in 2021, about our lives today. And we've kind of been on this theme all year of life. What is life? What is resurrection life? We spent a long Lent season waiting for Easter, where Jesus, through his death and resurrection, purchased for us real life. Not just heaven, but life. And since then, we've been digging in and trying to figure out what life is supposed to be like in light of this Easter miracle. And, uh, and that led us eventually to the book of Acts, where the very first Christians kind of launched in the wake of the resurrection um, upon this journey that we tend to call the kingdom of God. And, uh, and I know we do a bunch of reviews. We can go back and walk through the weeks we've already been through. But today's passage is going to kind of force us to do that a little bit. So I think today we'll just dive right into the passage. I'll be picking up in Acts 6. Um, actually, where Esther left off last week, I'll start in verse 8 if you want to follow in your own Bible or app. If not, the words will be behind me, and if you're joining us online, they'll be right in the middle of your screen. Then it reads like this, Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of the freed slaves, um, as it was called, started a debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria and Cilicia and the Providence of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. This is the word of the Lord. We're actually going to cover a lot of ground um, today, like almost two chapters. And so I didn't want to bore everybody by reading the entire thing, but we will be picking up some of it as we go. But I definitely recommend going home and reading um, 6, 7, and the beginning of 8 because this is a super rich passage. 
Um, but Stephen is one of the brand new deacons um, that was hired to serve tables for the benevolence ministry to make sure that widows were taken care of. Esther taught us this last week. Um, and he gets caught up in a drama this week. Um, just to set the scene a little bit, Stephen is a Greek name. Um, it's not a Hebrew name. And so most likely he's a Hellenistic Jew, which means a Jew who was, um, who was uh, not from Israel. Uh, he's a diaspora Jew or one of the Jews who were not native to Israel, whatever you want to call him. Um, Stephen's a Jew who is, who is not from here. Uh, and, uh, and he's debating with this, um, these people from the synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen or Freed Slaves, um, which is actually a synagogue made up of Jews who had been taken prisoner into Greece um, or, or now Rome, um, as Esther taught us last week. And were made slaves, but they had earned back their freedom. Rome had laws by which you could do that. Um, you could work and, uh, because the slaves were actually paid a little bit. And they saved the money, they could buy their own freedom back. And so these guys had purchased their own freedom, which was allowed them to travel back to Israel. And so they were probably born and raised um, in, in other uh, cities in the Roman Empire. They actually told us where they were from, Cilicia and Providence of Asia and all over. Um, but they've gotten freed and come back to Israel. So now they live in Israel again, but they're not really from Israel. And, and as Esther told us, they weren't really accepted by all the other Jews the same way native Jews were. And so they had their own synagogue. And so they, were the, they called it the synagogue of the freedmen, um, uh, which means, uh, you know, there was some segregation even in Judaism where they, they didn't really all worship together. They did in the temple, but not in their synagogues. They had their own synagogues. Um, and the apostles... Uh, uh, last week led the church to choosing six guys uh, because some of this, some of this uh, separation had made its way into the church. Some of, some of them were complaining that the, the, the widows that weren't from Israel weren't being treated fairly. And so the, the apostles wanted to make sure that, uh, that they were, that these Hellenistic Jewish widows were treated fairly like everybody else. And so um, they asked the people to choose um, some people who could, who could help represent them. And they chose these seven guys, like we learned last week, and Stephen's one of these guys. Um, and so what seems to be happening here is Stephen was elected to represent and kind of speak for the Hellenistic Christian Jews. So the Jews who had become believers in Jesus, but they weren't really from Israel. Stephen is kind of their representative. So it seems like he's kind of leveraging this position to go talk to these people that went to the synagogue of the freedmen. So these other Hellenistic Jews, and, and he's, he's over there talking to them about Jesus. And neither Stephen nor his message made them very happy. They're, they're, they're not liking what he has to say. Um, and so uh, uh, let's back up just a little bit, though. The, the brand new sect of kind of Judaism that's called Jesus Followers at this point, had been making quite a stir. Like they had been upsetting the powers that be. Um, and the, the kind of pushback um, that they were getting was on the increase. Uh, we talked several uh, weeks ago about how the, the temple leaders changed the policy. They kind of put down this new law, no more speaking in the name of Jesus. The, Peter and John had to go before them. They were like, speak no more in the name of Jesus. They threatened them, which is kind of the equivalent of passing a law. They're like, it is now illegal for you to preach in the name of Jesus. The next time they get caught doing it, they're flogged. So 
They change the law, that's strike one. They get flogged for doing it the second time, that's strike two. And unfortunately today, Stephen is going to get strike three. Um, because the people uh, that Stephen is debating, they can't come up with any way to kind of reasonably defend themselves against what he's saying. Everything he's saying is amazing. So all they can really do is, um, is to lie about it. And honestly, they didn't have much power anyway. And so they make up these lies and they get him sent before the council. And Stephen is now in front of these guys who are the same guys who crucified Jesus. They're the same guys that changed the law and told Peter they couldn't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they're the same guys that decided to have Peter flogged. And Stephen finds himself before that same group of men. Uh, and they, ask, they start out just by simply asking him, if the accusations are true. It reads like this. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia, where he settled in Haran. Now, this is subtle, but please notice that Stephen doesn't really answer their question. He, uh, you would think, right after Peter and John were beaten for preaching Jesus, Stephen would come in and go, hold on, that's not what I said at all. Wait a minute, they're taking all my words completely out of context. They're just making this stuff up. I did not say any of that. Um, but that's not what he does. Um, instead, Stephen does something kind of really clever here. Uh, he, he resorts to this well-known um, Jewish apologetic discourse, is what it's called, um, called a historical retrospective, if you want the fancy theological term. This is a Jewish historical retrospective. Um, and this dates all the way back to the Psalms. There's actually a classification of Psalms where they do this, where the psalmist just comes out and kind of recites everything that God has done um, for Israel. Uh, Psalm 78, if you want to go home and read one, is a great one, where the psalmist just tells God's story and, and the way he works with Israel. And so Jesus starts into one of these um, to answer the temple court's questions. Uh, they would have immediately recognized what he's doing because these were very common in Israel today. This was kind of how you argued your faith. Uh, and I'm not going to read the entire sermon because it's kind of long, um, but he does draw a theme through the whole thing that we're going to pull out. Stephen starts by telling Abraham's story. He says, he says uh, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he went to Haran. Then he goes from there. He walks up to Joseph's story. He says, the patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph. So they sold him uh, to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor all over Egypt and put him in charge of his palace. As, and then from Joseph, Stephen works his way up to Moses. And he says, Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful in both speech and action. And of course, if you're doing a retrospective on Israel, you've got to pick up the Exodus. And so he says, 40 years. Uh, yeah, uh, 40 years later in the desert of Mount Sinai, the angel appears to Moses in a flaming, burning bush. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Of course, after the great Exodus, you have the giving of the law, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness. When the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and there Moses received the life-giving words to pass on to us. 
Of course, after 40 years in the wilderness, our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown Moses. And this leads the people into going into the promised land. Years later, when Joshua led the ancestors into battle against the nations that drove out of the land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. And it stayed there until King David. And so Stephen has walked the Jewish story all the way up to King David, where it basically ends. And the end of his story reads like this. David found favor with God and asked for a privilege, the privilege of building a, temp- a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Could you build a temple as good as that? Asked God. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? And shortly thereafter, the, the uh, council had heard enough and they stoned Stephen to death. So what on earth was it about this historical retrospective that made these people so angry at Stephen. What made them so mad? Hopefully you were catching some of it in the, in the yellow letters, but there's a major theme that happens in this sermon that, that he pulls out in every little story he tells. We talked a few weeks ago about this turning point in the book of Acts where Peter and John are in the temple preaching and they get called in and, and threatened And when they go home, they're at a prayer meeting in somebody's house, and they pray God for boldness. And while they're there, God shakes the house. And it's this funny turning point where it's it's almost like if you were to expect God's presence to show up, you'd expect it to be in the temple, not in somebody's living room. And so something, there's a transition where from that point on, the centrality of the temple grows less and less and less in the book. And the the church starts to move. Because up till then... It was the disciples. It was a new movement, but it was happening in the temple. They went to the temple every day and every prayer time, and, and everything's happening in the temple. From that moment on, the temple starts to get left behind. And, and today, what Stephen starts drawing out is this reality. He's drawing out the location of God's presence. God shows up to talk to Abraham in Mesopotamia. That's not even anywhere near Israel. Joseph was in Egypt, and God was with him. Moses was raised and taught in Egypt. God shows up at the burning bush on Sinai. That's not in in Israel. The law was given on Sinai. The people worshipped in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And God showed up in the form of a, a column of fire and a column of smoke. For 500 years, once they were in the promised land, before there was a Jerusalem, they worshipped wherever the tabernacle went. So, remember the original accusation, what they originally accused Stephen of. It says, the lying witnesses says, this man always is always speaking against the holy temple and the law of Moses. So basically what Stephen does is answer this false accusation of him speaking against the temple by showing the temple leaders, these guys whose power is wrapped up in this location, they're only powerful, they only have their wealth and their power because people, because they get to leverage the presence of God. Everybody believes that the, the presence of God is in this temple, and these guys control the temple, and so they get to control the presence of God. And what Stephen does is he, he shows how the presence of God has always been out there. 
has always been somewhere else, everywhere else. God, especially in the Jewish story, the biggest stories, the stories we love the most are about the things God did out there. The things that God did when his people were scattered, when his people were everywhere. Now, we know a couple weeks ago how this transition point happened. That, that everything is moving away from the temple. And, and what Stephen shows us is that's more than just a geographical reality. That's more than just they just happen to start going somewhere else. This is a theological reality. What Stephen's sermon shows is that, is that the early church, God was doing a work in, in their hearts and minds to, to, to reveal things to them from the Old Testament that they hadn't seen before. That, that this movement of the temple wasn't just, oh, we can't go to the temple anymore, we'll get beat, so I guess we're going to do church here. No, this was more of a deep theological movement. They're starting to see things. They're starting to see things they hadn't seen before. And I think what is happening is the Holy Spirit is preparing them for what's about to come. Preparing them theologically and in their Bible study for what is about to happen. Stephen Sermon re- reveals that this was more than just uh, a, move, a change of location. This is a change of, of thought and heart about the presence of God. They were asking questions like, if God dwells in Judah, what was he doing in Mesopotamia talking to Abram? If God dwells in Jerusalem, why did he come to Moses on Sinai? If God dwells in this temple, then what was with the cloud and the fire in the wilderness? What this tells us is that God was stirring in their hearts the kind of ideas they were going to need here very, very shortly. Because what happens next is not any fun at all. What happens next is pretty horrible. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the region of Judea and Samaria. Can you imagine if they, if they hadn't had this kind of theological revelation that God's presence existed outside of the temple? If they didn't have that, maybe they, had, they would have forced themselves to stay put. But they didn't. And, and we felt this coming for a while now. The, the, the Sanhedrin made it illegal to preach Jesus. Every exchange between the church and the governing body keeps getting more and more violent. What started with threats became beatings, and then the beatings became execution. And we can read this like it's just another pericope of Scripture, like, like Stephen was just brutally ex- executed um, and, and just became the first martyr, like it's just a fact to remember. But the story starts like this. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. This dude was doing miracles. He was full of power and grace. He did mighty signs and wonders among the people. His job was feeding widows and orphans. If God was going to do a miracle in somebody's life, if he was going to miraculously deliver somebody, doesn't it seem like it should be Stephen? I mean, hasn't Stephen done everything right Do not let this be a dead, dry Bible story in your heart and mind. 
Plug in a name and a face that you know to bring this passage to life. Every one of us has seen a tragedy that makes no sense. Is that our air conditioner? I think that's our air conditioner. We've been having some issues with our air conditioner making noise. I'm going to turn that off. I love our air conditioner. I've got somebody scheduled to look at it this week. <laughs> Every single one of us knows somebody that goes through something that just doesn't make sense. And you're like, with all the horrible people in the world that are doing great, why this person, this innocent person, this sweet person, why are they going through this? And I guarantee that's what the church was doing when Stephen died. This guy was amazing. Why Stephen? And don't feel bad for Stephen in the story. Stephen sees... Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he dies praying for the people who are killing him. Like, Stephen wins at life. Like, that's, you know, if, if you're going to go out, Stephen went out right. So, the people we feel bad for is the people left behind who are trying to sort this out. How does this make any sense at all? Why Stephen? And I have no intention of coming up with an easy answer that makes sense to that. But I think we can only understand Stephen's fate when we read on. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Without reading the entire chapter to you, chapter 8 gives us an account of Philip. One of the scattered one of the ones who, who had, was forced to leave Jerusalem because of this wave of terrible persecution. Running for his life from Saul and this, and this new threat to the church. He's obviously probably grieving over the death of his friend, his co-worker. Philip's one of the guys, one of the seven who was chosen. He works side by side with Stephen. He's lost his buddy. He's running for his life. And yet everywhere he goes, he says he shared the gospel. We have a story of Philip, you know, and it, and it reads like this missions trip, like he goes up to Samaria. And we forget that he's, he's running. His life is at risk. And he preaches the gospel. For the first time in church history, a non-Jewish convert gets saved. Actually, a bunch of them. He goes up into Samaria which means he ran north from the persecution. Not on vacation, not on a missions trip, but running for his life. And he gets to Samaria, and, and a bunch of Samaritans get saved. No Samaritans have ever been saved. We're going to dive deeper into what that means to the church and some of the changes that that meant, but Jesus had told them at the beginning of this book, you're going to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as of yet, nobody's left. They were still ministering in Jerusalem until Saul goes on a rampage. Until they had to. They had to leave Jerusalem. Now, be honest. How many of you have ever stayed at a place longer than you should and it caused a great deal of pain? <laughs> yeah. Most of us. Most of us 
we were uncomfortable. We knew things weren't right. But we stayed because that's what you do. And it was almost like God said, uh, okay. One of the most uncomfortable themes in the book of Acts is the way that some of the most beneficial movements in this book only happen as a result of brutal pain. After the next martyr is killed, Peter gets arrested and he's freed by an angel, but he's forced to flee Jerusalem, which allows for a, a, a power shift. A, the, the power of Jerusalem shifts to James. James becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And it frees Peter up to travel and spread the gospel elsewhere. Once Paul steps on the stage, he begins to share the gospel. And the only reason he meets the other apostles is because... The city he was in wanted to kill him. The Christians had to let him over the wall of the city in a basket and sneak him out. And the only place to take him was the other apostles. He got to meet the other apostles because he was forced out of the city he was in. Usually, when he's on his travels, he stays in the city until they want to kill him. And then he goes to the next city. And, and what usually happens, the next city is thrilled to hear the gospel. And it makes you wonder what would have happened there if this city hadn't chased him out the door. It's not a fun theme, <laughs> but it happens all through the book. Where we, we stay, we want to be comfortable, we want to stick with what we know until God basically forces us to leave. We talked at the beginning of this book about how one of the reasons that Jesus ascended was because there was no way these 12 world changers were going to leave if he stayed put. They would have been thrilled to follow Jesus every day for the rest of their lives. Who wouldn't? If Jesus is there, who's going to go, hey, I'm going to go over here and witness with these. No, I'm just going to stay with Jesus. I'm not going anywhere. Right here. So Jesus had, had to leave so that these 12 guys would go. It seems that that isn't a one-time occurrence. It seems like that happens over and over and over again. They're, everybody's thrilled with what God is doing right here until God says, you need to go. Do more. And I'm not going to be coy and say that we should be all zen about suffering because it's all going to make sense when we look back. God knows best. Just relax. That's not human. That's not the way we live. We have the benefit in the book of Acts to read what happens next. You know, and, and, and Luke wrote it in a way that it's pretty easy to see. I think he wrote it this way on purpose. But it only takes us a minute to read the next chapter. It would have been quite different to live that chapter. Quite different. In fact, in the original Greek, it, it's kind of cool the way Philip, or the way Luke um, breaks this up, the way he explains this. But I think somebody who spoke original Greek would have caught it immediately. But it says, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church of Jerusalem. And all, all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the region of Judea and Samaria. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. The word scattered, I mean, it makes sense in English, but in Greek, it was a, plant, it was a farming term. It was an agricultural term. It was never used in this context in the, in the original Greek. It's the only time it's used in the Bible at all. But if you look at other Greek writing, it was always used agriculturally. The Greek definition is to plant or sow. That's the, that's the, that's the, the Greek word diaspero, to plant or sow. 
Luke, Luke uses this verb in the passive voice. Which, which means that the apostles were not the active participator. They didn't scatter. They were scattered. The implication is that God scattered them. He planted them. He sowed them elsewhere. The best translation of this verse is that God planted them all through Judea and Samaria. I guarantee that's not what it looked like to them. What it looked like to them was we're running for our lives. We are going to die if we stay put. Run. But the way Luke tells the story, he goes, and so all those people who were running for their lives, God planted them here and here and here. He knew there was fertile soil here. And he knew that something would grow there. He planted them. So both by Luke's choice of words and by the fact that we get to immediately see Samaritans get saved because of Philip running from this persecution, and then he, then he goes and baptizes an Ethiopian official, which is one of my favorite stories. Except no one living it through this story would have felt that. Saying that wouldn't have helped any of them as they're watching Stephen's blood soak into the cobbles of Jerusalem. Which leads us to the painful truth that we all instinctively know, but none of us have any clue what to do with and that's that God's good will can usually only be seen when we look backwards. <laughs> I swear I didn't put him up to it, but I love that Samuel shared that story. Because what looks like, man, I really wanted that candy, you get to look back on it and go, God used me to maybe save a life. Definitely save an insulin coma, but Almost 15 years ago, I was in hell. I've, my business had dried up. I've always worked word of mouth, and I've always stayed busy. Every once in a while, I have a week off here and there as I wait for one job to start and another one to stop. But I've always had work for 30 years. Work's always come in. And then almost 15 years ago, it just stopped. I hadn't worked in three or four weeks. I didn't even have any prospects lined up. I was freaking out. I never experienced pressure like that. Like, what do I do? I don't know what comes next. I was a mess. One day after church, I'm talking to a friend, Merrill, and he told me that Doug Evans has some properties in, in Missouri that, that he might need some help with. And I knew of Doug, but didn't know Doug. And, and I, uh, uh, I uh, knew he was in oil, and that was well outside my skill set. So I... But on a whim, I was like, what the heck? I called him and come to find out Doug did indeed have some hot houses in Missouri. He needed work, and we pretty quickly worked out a deal, and I was back to work again. And that's a good enough story. That's an awesome enough story. But as I worked with Doug in business, and, and we would talk about church and God and theology and family, and found out we had some really similar opinions on things, and he invited me to his small group that he had at his house. And, and I went and met some other great people, Dale and Judy and some others. And Doug became one of my closest friends, as well as some of the other people, which is awesome. All because I went through hell. And then five years ago, Doug comes to me and says, what do you think about starting a church in this area? 
I had buried that dream. I'd had that dream for years and years and years, and Doug knew it, but I had buried it because every time I tried, it didn't work, and it was painful. And so I'd put that to sleep. Doug comes and pokes it. We think about starting a church in this area. And now looking back, I can see, looking in the rearview mirror, I can see that I'm standing here this morning preaching because I went through hell 15 years ago. One of the hardest times of my life. And from that came a friendship and a, and a growth, and now I'm here. Looks very different in the rearview mirror. Almost 18 years ago, my marriage fell apart. This is the hardest thing I've ever been through. I don't even have words for that depth of pain. But everything good in my relationship with Esther grew out of that wreckage. I look back at the first 11 years of our marriage, and I don't, it amazes me how little I understood about love. Almost everything good in our, in our relationship came after. To where I literally thank God for the darkest moments in my life. Because every, everything beautiful that I have came from that. And I know we all have these stories. We all have these situations that are terrible when you go through them and then you look back and realize it was the hand of God. And the Bible is full of these stories. Our entire faith hangs on one of these. Easter didn't happen until after Good Friday. The resurrection didn't happen until after the cross. The thing that I love about this entire passage is it shows us the importance of looking backward in our story. Stephen was testifying before the Sanhedrin by going backwards. All the way back to Abraham. And his death only makes sense when you read on and look backward. God used it. Who knows if the Samaritans would have got saved if if Stephen hadn't taken his stand. Last week, Esther taught us about how the apostles hit this wall. They could no longer lead the benevolence ministry in the church and still study and preach and pray the way they needed to. I think one of the reasons this was was they were spending so much time studying the Scripture going, we have to rethink everything. We have to go backwards. Now that we've seen Jesus suffer and die and rise, we have to go back and revisit the whole story. They go, man, this changes everything. The way we've understood everything is different now. Because we got to see the suffering Savior from Isaiah that that we never really fully understood what that was even going to mean. Now it makes so much sense. The Christian life is a life that looks backwards even as it moves forwards. You know how weird it is that we come together every week to talk about a 3,500-year-old book? It's a weird book club. Yeah. In fact, one of the things that makes me secure in the Christian narrative, the Christian story, is that our, our, our faith has a long and complex past. Complex. That's, that's the part I love the most. One of the things that separates the kind of classic Christian cults from kind of Orthodox Christianity Theologians will tell you it's a lot of things, usually a low Christology, but that's not even what gets it for me. What gets it for me is they hang on the, on the testimony of one person. One guy goes into a cave and finds some glasses, and now the whole system hangs on that. 
Usually it's one person has, has some big idea and, and the whole denomination, if you want to call it, that hangs on that one idea. Islam is a whole world religion based on one guy goes into a cave, has a revelation, and, uh, and if that guy was wrong, the whole thing is wrong. I know we have a tendency to say that Christianity is all about Jesus and, and finding him and knowing him as your personal savior is pretty much the whole ball game, but the truth is Jesus is only Jesus because he fulfills this huge story that, that goes all the way back in you know, 40 some odd authors and 66 books and a, and a whole long history of everybody talking together and, and debating and arguing and all of that is part of it. That whole story, that whole community is part of it. From the moment writing was invented, God's people have been recording their experiences with God. And before that, it was captured in poetry and song and oral tradition. And the entire discussion and all of its growth and all of its change is part of the process of following Jesus. We're not hanging on the writings of any one person. We're hanging on a huge community of people who are trying to figure out what it means to follow God. And it all culminates in Jesus. Our faith, faith does not hang on any one person. We're part of a community, a discussion, a story that stretches backwards for a long, long, long time. Thousands of years. For me, theology isn't a list of things that we mentally agree to. Theology is a discussion. It's a very old discussion. And I'm... It's about taking your seat at the table and going, I want to be part of this story, part of this talk, part of this discussion of what God is doing in the world. In fact, the reason I love the fact that the four Gospels are also different and don't always agree with each other is because that's the way it should be. These four guys didn't get together and, hey, let's get our story straight. They didn't get together and collaborate. They looked back 20, 30 years later and told the story the way they remembered it. And some details jumped out to one guy and some details jumped out to a different guy exactly the way you would expect it to if real human Jesus followers told their story. I love that we're part of a complex discussion about God's work and God's people. Stephen in today's passage gave his argument for the fact that God's presence isn't bound to the temple by using a historical retrospective. Why? Because the psalmist did it. And Stephen saw himself as part of that same community and discussion that the psalmist was part of. Why did the psalmist do it? Because in Exodus 15, Moses did it. And the psalmist saw himself as part of that same discussion, that same, that, that same community. Why do we spend so much time at Open Table looking backwards as we try to figure out what this ancient text has to say in 2021? Because we sit at that same table as Moses and the psalmist and Stephen, and we're part of that same discussion. We are people who move forward by looking backward. But, <laughs> and as you know, things get really tricky when I use that word. I would love to stand here and tell you that looking backward makes everything make sense. I'd love to be able to wrap up this message as like a cheerleader and tell you to just hold on and trust God and everything will make sense when it plays out. And when you see all of your pain and disappointment and failure and all that other stuff in your life, in the rearview mirror, it will all make sense. And I wish it was that easy. Now, let's see, I do believe that to some extent. I think what will make heaven heaven is that we will understand 
and that will be glorious enough to, 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 to finally get it. But today, living right here, living the lives that God has given us to live, while we're also trying to advance the kingdom of God and, and pursue Jesus with all of our hearts, looking backwards, as important as it is, doesn't always make it easier. I mean, since God used Stephen's murder and the subsequent persecution to push his church out of the nest and advance the gospel into Samaria and save countless souls, does that make it okay that a group of men stone Stephen out of fear and jealousy and hate? As long as the effect is good, does that make the whole thing okay? When you read the prophets, there's this crazy dynamic that I never really know what to do with. God will use the prophet to send a message to Israel. And, and several prophets do this. Several of the books do this. God says through the prophet, I'm going to use my servant Babylon. It's always weird because there's like eight or ten times when, it, when God says, I'm going to use my servant Babylon, which I don't even know where to do with that, to judge you for all of your evil. He's saying this to his people. I'm going to use my servant Babylon to judge you for all of your evil. And then after a time, I'll restore you and I will judge Babylon for what they did. So it's like God said, I'm going to use them to judge you and then I'll punish them for it. What? So it's like we can't even discern the will of God when we look backwards in the story. Or our story. And part of the problem is, as we look backwards, we're trying to sort out whether what, would, what, what happened was, was it good or was it evil. I think that's where things start to click into place. We talk about it all the time. The moment that Adam and Eve made that terrible decision, that first sin. We talk about the four relationships that were broken the instant they disobeyed God. But we don't often talk in detail about what was so tempting about that darn piece of fruit. Maybe more importantly this morning, exactly what fundamentally changed to cause all of that brokenness. The original temptation reads like this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you could not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the servant replies to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Isn't that exactly what we were just asking for? Isn't that what we want as we consider confusing and frustrating stories like Stephen's? Was Stephen's death a pure act of evil? Or was it God's way of moving his church to the next step? And since Stephen woke up in heaven like a nanosecond after this, I can't imagine he was too bummed. And let's be honest, in the course of our daily lives, who cares about Stephen? What about our stories? 
when a great sin leads to your ultimate happiness and satisfaction, was it good or evil? When the pain that someone else causes you actually turns out to move you to a healthier place, or you, or someone causes you to actually be better, are you allowed to be mad at them? Was their treatment of you good or evil? Doesn't it seem like Satan's offer would sure make life a lot easier? If we could just know good from evil. I mean, if we were 100% honest, wouldn't you like to know what, what is ultimately good and what is ultimately evil, even in your own story? And the temptation to gravitate to easy answers is so great. So great, it really is. Except, as it is, Satan's offer, though tempting, is not accurate. In fact, here's how God explains that exact same situation. Satan says, your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. God says it this way. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat that fruit, you are sure to die. Where Satan promised that, that we would be just like God. And Satan's definition of that would be that you will know good from evil. That thing that you're dying to know, you'll know. God's promise seems to be that the game of trying to sort that out for yourself will be like a death. Let me give you an example. Years ago, Esther and I were on this prayer chain type thing. Where it, was, it was pretty big. And hundreds of people, and people would throw prayer requests on there. And there was this Christian mother of three, pregnant with her fourth. And she had just learned that, she, that her fourth was an ectopic pregnancy. The egg had, fertilized egg had firmly attached in the fallopian tube. As it grows, it'll rupture the tube. 99% of the cases, if it's left to its own, the mom will die. The only option the doctors gave her were to abort. If the baby, in fact, the baby was so young, they, were, they weren't even calling that. She just needed to get a DNC and start over. The woman was 100% against abortion, but she was also 100% against leaving her other three children motherless. What's good and evil in that moment? For the majority of human history, she would have died. And everybody would have been super sad, but there would have been no moral culpability. No one would have had a clue. She would have been one of the thousands of women who died in, in, during pregnancy. But once you know, how do you sort out good from evil there? The mother did eventually have the DNC and, and lived to raise her other kids and had to carry this death with her forever. And that's what God said. The moment you start to play this game, it'll be like death. It'll be like death. I'm a pacifist. Try to be. Because Jesus commanded me to turn the other cheek, love my neighbor, or love my enemy, promise that the peacemakers will be called children of God. 
So I try, I try hard to obey God in this. One of my favorite theologians, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, also a pacifist. And since Hitler had been trying to arrange a meeting with Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer volunteered to carry a briefcase with a bomb in it and blow himself and Hitler and everybody else up. Because he was like, this is too much evil. How do you choose good from evil? There are many curses and much brokenness that came out of the fall. And maybe none was as life-altering and horrible as the constant, never-ending hunt for good and evil. I think most of the division in the world is over this fight for knowing good from evil. How do you respond to this? When I read my message, her first response was, you just can't help but screw with people, can you? Today's passage is kind of like an onion. The first layer is the story of the first martyr who dies. Seeing Jesus stand at the right hand of God is beautiful. Except it spawns this persecution that threatens the whole church, which is horrible. Except that allows God's people to be planted in fertile soil like Samaria and save tons of people, which is awesome. And man, is that real life. Layer after layer after layer. I'd love to tell you to just leave good and evil in the hands of God and just be chill and trust God's in control. Except one-third of the Psalms are what we call lament Psalms. These are people screaming out and yelling at God in their confusion and their anger and their frustration and their hurt. Very unchill. <laughs> Jesus dies singing Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God does not want you to be zen about your pain. He does not want you to turn a blind eye to injustice just because you believe God's in control. God will work it all out in the end. We are humans, which means we come with a big bundle of emotions that need to be both felt and voiced. We should lament. But at the same time, we do know that God works things out for good for those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we almost always see that when we look backwards. So what are we to do? A couple summers ago when we were studying the Psalms, we called it Finding Your Butt. We got this from Psalms 13, which is a lament song. It's kind of the quintessential lament psalm. It says, Oh Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul? The sorrow in my heart every day. How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Do not let my enemies gloat saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I will trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me.
find your butt. The ancient rabbis used to say that the Torah was the way God talks to us. And the Psalms were the way we talk back to God. They believed that the Psalms were there to show us how God wants us to talk to Him. If that's true, God wants us to lament. He wants us to scream and cry to Him and be frustrated and hurt. He wants our authenticity, even when it's ugly. But He also wants us to find our butt. He wants us to find Him, the authentic and good God. This is a major theme in all the lament psalms. It actually seems to be the point. The psalmist would, would let it all out, everything they're feeling, so that, so that they could say, but I know you are good and you care for us. And what this is in a nutshell is learning gratitude. I personally believe gratitude is the antidote for the good and evil analysis paralysis. Whether it's the stuff we've done or the stuff that's been done to us, there's something powerful about looking at our life today in this moment and deciding to leave the good and evil stuff in God's hands and for our sake, choosing to say, I know that all this stuff brought me to this moment where I can worship God, advance His kingdom, love people, and be grateful right here. I have no idea any of that stuff that happened was good or evil. I don't know. I just know I'm in this moment and God is good. And I can worship Him and love Him. I mean, when you think about Adam and Eve, it feels like the fix is to look at all the other trees and go, I'm so glad it's only one tree that I can't eat from. Man, I've been given a lot. And you stand in gratitude in that moment. Or you go, why wasn't I given that tree? And yeah, that's superhuman. That's what we do. Every single one of us has a reason to be discontent. We've all made terrible mistakes. We've all been mistreated. We've all had terrible things done to us. And we have a time to be grateful for. We've been so blessed. Jesus left the comforts of heaven and entered our mess where he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose from the dead to save us. Even if nothing good ever happens again, we still die blessed. Because Jesus has saved us. Every single one of us has a reason to be grateful. I think the key to living in 2021, the way the early church lived in the book of Acts, is to learn to look backwards as we move forward, to honestly and openly lament when we're in pain, but to find true gratitude for how blessed we really are. I think when you live that way, truly open and authentic and willing to lament and share what's going on in your world, and realize that that's, that's not lack of faith. I mean, what's funny is we think of some of the big questions like, okay, if God's so good and powerful, then why is there so much evil in the world? Like, that's like the big atheist question that they all ask. 
What's ironic is in the scripture, it's the believers that ask that question. Over and over and over again. There's several prophets who are like, God, if you're so good, why is everything falling apart? It's the believers. They don't hesitate to go to God with their honest guts. And then they go, but I know you're good. I know you're good to your people. They find their butt. But I know you're good. And they express their gratitude. I think when we can live like that, when we can live honestly and openly about what's going on, what scares us, what hurts us, what we regret, and we're open and honest with that, we learn to lament that while at the same time being so grateful for where we are and what we have. That the Holy Spirit can, can move in us and do amazing things like He did with the early church. Let's go to the table.